Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Aretha Franklin's version of Say a Little Prayer. And why are we playing that instead of our regular introductory music? Lucinda Williams' riff from her latest record? It's simple. It's National Day of Prayer. And actually, we take these kind of things seriously here on Our American Stories because lots of Americans do. And so we wanted to spend some time listening to some great prayers, talking about prayer, playing some music about prayer. And today is the National Day of Prayer, an annual day of observance, which began in 1952 when Congress designated the day and asked the people of this nation to turn to God in prayer and meditation. Today on the National Day of Prayer, we're going to look back at, well, prayer in all of its forms, bring you some of the most famous prayers, one you may not have ever heard before, or you may have but not known it was a prayer. And when you hear it, you're going to go, oh my goodness, why didn't anybody ever tell me the whole thing was a prayer? I'm not going to tell you what that is, and we'll be playing it in the next segment. So you're going to have to stick around. We want to start off with George W. Bush, and it was 9-11. And let me tell you, the church pews got full, really full. And he needed to bind a nation together, and here were the words he uttered. Tonight I ask for your prayers for all those who grieve, for the children whose worlds have been shattered, for all whose sense of safety and security has been threatened. And I pray they will be comforted by a power greater than any of us, spoken through the ages in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. And those words healed the nation, and for a time, everybody in this country was on the same page, and it was terrific. Tragic, but also terrific. The best nature of ourselves revealed at that time. Next, we're going to hear a cantor, Cantorazi Schwartz, leading the beautiful Jewish prayer of the fallen at a service with Pope Francis at the 9-11 memorial last year. And that translation 
in translation is, O God, full of compassion, who dwells on high, grant true rest upon the wings of the divine presence in the exalted spheres of the holy and pure who shine as the resplendence of the firmament to the souls of September 11, who has gone to his world for charity, has been donated in remembrance of his soul. May his place of rest be in Eden. Therefore, may the all-merciful one shelter him with the cover of his wings forever and bind his soul in the bond of life. The Lord is his heritage. May he rest in his resting place in peace. And let us say, Amen. I want to close with a powerful story about prayer from 9-11 and about the man who delivered it. He was vice president for the big-time financial firm Cantor Fitzgerald. Many days he hated going to work at their World Trade Center offices. Many people made fun of his faith, and they did cruel things like leave profane screensavers on his computer. They called him the Rev. And yet all knew that Al Branca was there for them. A survivor of the first Trade Center terrorist attack in 1993, Al helped a woman with asthma get to safety. And when colleagues fell into hard times financially or in their marriages, whatever it was, they would always come to Al. And he prayed for them, and he prayed with them, despite them having made fun of him. After the first plane on September 11, 2001, struck the first tower, several Cantor Fitzgerald employees called their loved ones and said their goodbyes. Al's family did not get a call that day. As their loved ones cried on the other end of the line, many of the employees told their families, don't worry, I'm okay. We're praying with Al. There were as many as 50 people in Al's prayer circle. These were people that Al had prayed for regularly for years before without much success. But here they were now sitting together in an office that was above where the first plane hit. Of the 700 employees on their floor that day at Cantor Fitzgerald, none survived. They went into their final moments praying in the name of Jesus. They were okay. This is Our American Stories, National Day of Prayer. We focused on 9-11 even though It's far away because that's one of the days we remember while all of us were praying. Believers, non-believers, we were thinking about bigger things. And when we come back, we're going to touch on, well, President Roosevelt. We're going to touch on Mother Teresa when we come back. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.
And you were listening to Eric Metaxas. This was a couple of years ago at the National Prayer Breakfast. He just decided to spontaneously sing a prayer. And Aquinas, as Alex has pointed out, said, when you sing, you pray twice. And he led the uh, the, the folks who were in this breakfast into a spontaneous, into spontaneous song. I told you we were celebrating the National Day of Prayer, and I teased Mother Teresa. And here's what she says prayer means to her, not just as the individual, but what it means for the family. Let's listen to Mother Teresa's thoughts. The fruit of prayer is the deepening of faith. And the fruit of faith is love. And the fruit of love is service. And the fruit of service is peace. Works of love are works of peace. That is why let us bring the tender love of God in our families. And by the way, the fruit of prayer is the deepening of faith. The fruit of faith is love. Just a perfect two sentences. Well, now let's hear Will Ferrell as Ricky Bobby and the movie Talladega Nights. I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. Dear tiny Jesus, your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled up fist pawing. He was a man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I win the races and I get the money. Ricky. Finish the damn grace. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party, too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus, like, with giant eagle's wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with, like, an angel band. And I'm in the front row, and I'm hammered drunk. Hey, Cal. Why don't you just shut up? Yes, ma'am. Okay. (laughs) Dear eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant, so cuddly, Mm. but still omnipotent. Mm. We just thank you for all the races I've won and $21.2 million. Woo! 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 Ow! Love that money! (laughs) And so we can have fun with it, and they did there have fun with the prayer and the tradition of prayer. But now let's get down to the prayer we were telling you about, and it was FDR's. And it was for the D-Day invasion. And he was warning Americans of what was to come, when rather than lecture them, rather than address them, he did something unique. And on national radio, not national television, with the whole country listening. Well, take a listen. In this poignant hour... I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. For the enemy is strong, 
he may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed, but we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. They will be sore tried by night and by day without rest until the victory is won. The darkness will be rent by noise and flame. Men's souls will be shaken with the violences of war. For these men are lately drawn from the ways of peace. They fight not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise and tolerance and goodwill among all thy people. They yearn but for the end of battle, for their return to the haven of home. Some will never return. Embrace these, Father, and receive them, thy heroic servants, into thy kingdom. Can you imagine hearing anything like that today, folks? Let's listen to FDR as he continues to pray with and for the men and women engaged in this epic battle. And for us at home, fathers, mothers, children, wives, sisters, and brothers of brave men overseas whose thoughts and prayers are ever with them. Help us, almighty God, to rededicate ourselves in renewed faith in thee in this hour of great sacrifice. Many people have urged that I call the nation into a single day of special prayer. But because the road is long and the desire is great, I ask that our people devote themselves in a continuance of prayer. As we rise to each new day, and again when each day is spent, let words of prayer be on our lips, invoking thy help to our efforts. Give us strength, too, strengthen our daily tasks, to redouble the contributions we make in the physical and the material support of our armed forces. And let our hearts be stout to wait out the long travel, to bear sorrows that may come, to impart our courage unto our sons, wheresoever they may be. And here's how Roosevelt closed things out. And, O Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, faith in our united 
crusade. Let not the keenness of our spirit ever be dulled. Let not the impacts of temporary events, of temporal matters of but fleeting moment, let not these deter us in our unconquerable purpose. With thy blessing, we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us to conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogances. Lead us to the saving of our country and with our sister nations into a world unity that will spell a sure peace, a peace invulnerable to the schemings of unworthy men, and a peace that will let all men live in freedom, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. Thy will be done, almighty God. Amen. A remarkable speech for remarkable times. O oh Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in Thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, faith in our united crusade. He used the C word, folks, and it was a crusade and a good one. National Day of Prayer, Roosevelt's Prayer, the D-Day Prayer, and others. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Nel cuore resterà In hope in our heart A ricordarci che When stars go out each night L'eterna stella sei Nella mia preghiera Our American Stories, and we're back with one of our favorite topics, Random Acts of Kindness. You can find all sorts of these uplifting stories at randomactsofkindness.org. It's an inspiring resource and a great one to share with friends, with family, with kids, because in the end, the media wants one thing. It wants blood, it wants tragedy, and it wants, it wants controversy in the end. If it bleeds, it leads. Um, but we think differently here in Our American Stories. And today, also, as a part of National Police Week, we want to focus on cops and their random acts of kindness, because too often we hear about extreme stories, either extreme bravery, uh, a cop doing something heroic uh, and saving a life, and we hear about some of the bad things periodically that cops do, but the great middle, the great majority of of the wonderful things cops do every day that no one talks about, no one writes about, no one reads about, that's what we want to focus on here. But first, we wanted to share a few stories before we bring on Houston Police Department Union President Ray Hunt. Let's start first with a story about a cop, a father, and a trip to Walmart in Westland, Michigan. You may remember hearing a story just like this a few weeks back, but that was a different officer halfway across the country, which just goes to show the overall character of Americans, men in blue and women. 
When Levante Dell was pulled over in his Impala Monday afternoon on Warren Avenue, he thought, oh no. When he hit the lights, that's I did what everybody pretty much does when they get pulled over, heart drop, went to my stomach. Dell figured it was because of his tinted windows, and he was right. But when Westland police officer Joshua Scaglioni walked up to the car, he saw something else. Dell's three-year-old daughter, Lauren, was not in a car seat. I asked him, why is she in there without a car seat? It's unsafe. And he teared up a little bit, explained to me that he's going through some tough times. When he asked me, do I mind stepping out the car? I, I was really expecting the worst. But that's when something really great happened. He actually talked to me. He asked me what was going on. And I, I broke everything down to him, like why I'm in the position that I'm in and why money is tight. I related to it. I related to the fact that I've been in that situation before. And I said, you know, to myself, this is a perfect opportunity for me to help this guy. So this rookie officer didn't give Dell a ticket. Instead, he told him to follow him to Walmart. And as they walked through the aisles heading for the car seat section, Dell says he didn't feel like he was with someone he'd just met. You would have thought we was best friends, like we knew each other for a while because it wasn't an awkward silence. We was talking the whole way. I learned about him. He learned about me. He seems like the blue-collar, hard-working guy, uh, and he's doing his best he can for his family. And then another surprise. Officer Scaglioni reached into his own pocket and bought this car seat for Dell's daughter. I thank him from the bottom of my heart. Dell says they parted ways before he realized he didn't get Officer Scaglioni's name. That's one of the reasons he posted the story on Facebook, and it has since gone viral. I feel he should get the recognition that he that he deserves. Like, everybody should know what he did. So now little Lauren has her car seat. Thank you. And her father has a newfound appreciation for police. Don't judge a book by its cover, man. You'll be surprised what come out of it. It wasn't my intention. I never thought that this was going to happen. Never thought that I'd be talking to you. <laughs> but I am. And I, I really hope that this uh, has changed a lot of people's perception on us. Officer Scaglioni, well, everybody now knows and, well, there are so many more stories like it. We want to bring you another one from a very different state, a very different season. This one, Bethel Park, Pennsylvania, just south of Pittsburgh. But the spirit, identical. It was an act of kindness after an emergency situation. Police helping a man who had just suffered a heart attack and then set out to finish the job he had started. The post has been viewed thousands of times with the hashtag people helping people. It may not seem like much, a couple of officers with shovels in their hands, but it was much more than that. It was just, a, just something we, you know, police officers do every day. It was just somebody happened to just take a picture and notice it this time. It was here along Stonewood Drive in Bethel Park where the 75-year-old man went out to clear the driveway after the first round of snow yesterday morning, but he collapsed suffering a heart attack. We hooked up an AED and uh, Officer Gorman started doing compressions and while he was doing that, the paramedics then arrived and they, and they took over. With the medics rushing the man to the hospital, who was at that point now conscious and speaking, his wife following behind the ambulance, the three officers left at the house, Officers Minson, Beer and Gorman, picked up the tools left behind and got to work. I suggested why don't we finish the driveway and they're like, yeah, let's do it. We grabbed some shovels and a broom and finished shoveling the driveway along with a neighbor across the street actually jumped in and, and helped us too. It was a simple act of kindness, says neighbor Sarah Chikis, but it did not go unnoticed. To see that, you know, there are good police officers out there and who are willing to step up and go above and beyond who, you know, didn't have to do that at all, but, you know, took the time to, you know, out of their day to, t to help her and to help, you know, the family and whole was a great thing to see. 
The picture, posted on Bethel Park Police's Facebook page, has hundreds of comments. Officer Minson says it's amazing to see the response, but what they did was not out of the ordinary. But if it wasn't for that, you know, most people would know officers do stuff like that every day. Indeed. And this one and the last one, and then we'll be joined again by Houston Police Department Union President Ray Hunt. This one starts off so normally. But soon, as you'll see, it will deeply impact one young man. This one from San Diego, California. 36-year-old officer Jeremy Henwood ordering his fast food dinner inside a City Heights McDonald's. It's seemingly ordinary surveillance video except for what happens next. Watches the officer is approached by a young boy. I was looking around like, how am I do this? How am I going to do this? And then I went up to him and just asked him. 13-year-old Davian Tinsley needed 10 cents. I just seen him a tall officer, and he looks pretty nice. So he approached the officer and asked him, to which Henwood replied, What is the money for? And I said, cookies. And then he said, okay, I'll buy them for you. The video carries the haunting reality of a nightmare waiting literally around the corner. Officer Henwood was shot and killed by a shotgun blast, the McDonald's bag unopened in the back seat. Wow, that's amazing, huh? Today, Davian and his dad watched the video for the first time, their eyes glued to a scene they'll never forget. Character is, what you doing when nobody's around with yourself? How you acting when nobody's around? Friends of Henwood say this final act of kindness caught on tape is how he lived. He was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, an NBA star. He said, that takes hard work. For Davian, those words are now part of who he is. He tells me to work hard, I'm going to work hard. Jerry Tinsley aims to make sure his son follows through on that promise. We have all have role models, and I'm make this um, this officer, this fallen soldier, out of his role model. You know, every day he go to school, he gonna remember his fallen officer because he was the last person who talked to this this man. A man who served his country and community until the day he died. The proof is on video and in the untold future of a 13-year-old boy. And that's what we're doing today, National. Police Week, and also Random Acts of Kindness. And this officer, Jeremy Henwood, he had served with San Diego PD for four years, and he was also a captain in the United States United States Marine Corps. And boy, is there a lot of that crossover, men who've served their country and women who've served their country, and then they want to come back and just continue serving. And they almost don't feel comfortable doing anything else, going into harm's way and just... You know, putting themselves between bad forces and good forces. And this is such a tragic and senseless loss. But we can celebrate the character of this man uh, who never thought twice about helping out even a kid who needed a dime for some cookies. And uh, just remarkable storytelling. When we come back, Houston PD Union President Ray Hunt. This is Our American Stories. And again, randomactsofkindness.org is where you can find so much of this great work. And here at Our American Stories, you want controversy, you want people screaming and yelling at each other, you got the wrong station. But if you want great stories, and by the way, great commencement addresses all month this month, General Pete Paces at the Citadel. Take a listen. Put your family around the radio when you listen to it because you're going to learn from a great man what sacrifice looks like, what service looks like, and what leadership sounds like. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. When we come back, Ray Hunt.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to do random acts of kindness. We do it all year long. But we also want to celebrate National Police Week, which is this week, and all the men and women in blue who put themselves in harm's way. And we wanted to be joined by and are joined by Houston Police Department Union President Ray Hunt. Ray, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. You know, Ray, you know, people tend to hear about uh, things that happen when police encounter civilians in the media only through ex- what I call extreme events or outliers. Uh, talk about how this, how the, the media coverage affects the morale of ordinary cops on the beat uh, and in the street. You know, uh, the, the bad things that, that they want to show in the media all obviously sells newspapers and, and sells uh, ads on TV and radio, but uh, the, the, the morale that, that does to police officers whenever they see these things, they realize that they're picking out that small segment of the, of the police community that, uh, that aren't doing the right thing every day, all the time. And rarely do you see these acts of kindness taking place. But let me just tell you, the things that I just heard that you were reporting, those things happen hundreds of times a day, if not thousands of times a day across this nation. Very similar incidents happen just like that here in Houston. And I assure you that it happens at all police departments across this country. Officers don't call the media and say, hey, let me tell you about this. Just like I didn't call y'all and ask y'all to be here today. Right. You y'all bet. contacted us. We we, we we police officers aren't going to go out there and pat themselves on the back and say, hey, look what I did. That's not what we're supposed to do. The individual that was shot after he bought the kid some cookies, we probably would have never found out about that incident had he not been killed because that's when they went back to trace his steps to find out what happened prior to this. But those things happen all the time. You bet. And in, and in Houston, look, there are, there are forces that are under the lens even more because some neighborhoods are tougher to patrol than others. And the contact with civilians can sometimes be tougher. Um, An ordinary cop's life in a suburb and an ordinary cop's life in a a big city are very different. Three of my best friends uh, went through law school and then went to the FBI. And they are brothers. And half of the other family are NYPD. And I've walked in those shoes. I've taken rides in those cars. And my goodness, I didn't realize, sir, that every time a cop steps into a domestic dispute, Every time he answers a call, even a pullover, a car pulled over, I had never seen it from the cop's point of view before. I had always seen it from the, from the well, I would call it the suspect's point of view, because when I would get pulled over, I'd be sitting there going, oh, what did I do? What's going to happen to me? Damn it. Um, I wasn't thinking, oh, good, cheerio, I'm just getting pulled over. Uh, do you think it would benefit more Americans if they were to walk in the shoes of an officer for a day? No doubt, no doubt about it. I, I trained officers for 15 years on night shift, and and I used to tell rookie officers that when you're walking up to a car, if your if your heart doesn't start beating a little bit faster than it did before you stopped that vehicle, you probably should leave this job. You never know what you're about to encounter, and people automatically assume that when an officer walks up to that car, that they're calm, cool, and collected. That officer has no idea what they're about to encounter. That officer has no idea if that simple traffic stop is about to turn into a deadly short force situation. Um, that officer has no idea when that silent 911 comes from that house, whether somebody's just mistakenly dialed 911 trying to do it do an international operator or if someone's just pointing a gun at somebody in that house and is about to kill them. All of those things have to happen, and, and it's an extremely dangerous job. But most officers do this job because they want to help people, and that's where these random acts of kindness come from. The officers have big hearts, and when they see somebody hurting, they want to try to help that person, especially when there's children involved. 
And you're so right. Uh, just as I have never met a, a soldier who toots his own horn, and we yeah. learn, and we're we're coming up on Memorial Day and D Day. And if you remember when Stephen Ambrose finally wrote Band of Brothers, he was finally able to cat crack the code and get these men to talk about their acts of heroism and bravery. And they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to do it because they just said, "Look, I was doing what I was supposed to do." And by the way, the real brave people are the dead ones. And so yep. there's a different sort of honor code with, with these guys who serve. But if you could, because you're a representative of these men and women, tell us a couple of the stories that you know of in your own police force. Share, with, share a few of those with our audience, if you could. Well, the story with the car seat uh, reminded me of a situation that, that we had here in Houston. And one of our local reporters who we have a great relationship with had encountered a, a lady with some kids in a hotel room. It was around Christmas time. She had no gifts. She contacted us and said, you know, is there any way y'all might be able to get some gifts over here? We have a Blue Santa program. So we took gifts over to the hotel room, gave her a business card, and said, if you need anything while you're here in Houston, give us a call. The very next day, she called, and she was on a traffic stop, and one of our officers had stopped her because her child was not in a car seat, and she had an expired uh, inspection sticker. Officer talks to her, and he goes back to start writing the ticket, and she makes a phone call, and she's crying, and she tells us, she said, I just got stopped by this officer for this, this, and this. So when the officer comes back, he's the, uh, our officer here at the union said, would you put the officer on the phone? So he gets on the phone, and, and we tell him that, hey, we just kind of adopted this family. They're really going through some tough times. We took them gifts, et cetera, et cetera. That sergeant took her over to Walmart to buy her a car seat for that child and told her that she needed to get an inspection sticker. She said she couldn't because one of her front tires was bald. He took her back over to the Walmart in the back to, to buy her a tire. Walmart manager found out about it, and he said, you know what, that other front tire looks bad. I'm going to pay for that one. So this sergeant not only bought her a car seat and a tire, but also got her got her on the road. And and those kind of things happen all the time uh, that, that don't get reported. Yeah, and you know, my dear friend, and his name is Carl Bazin, and we always called him the Amazing Bazin because he had this incredible law degree. He could have done anything in the world, made all kinds of money, and, well, he just wanted to serve the public through the FBI. And his father and his two brothers, my goodness, one was a transit cop, two were detectives, and I just loved hanging out with these men. And, again, so self-effacing. The things they did every day in the neighborhoods were wonderful. I wanted to talk a little about you. You've been in, in the force since 1989, a UT Austin graduate. What's day-to-day policing life like? What's the life like? What's an ordinary day like in the life of a cop? It's never boring. Um, you never know whenever you put that uniform on and go out there for that shift what you're going to encounter. Uh, it's a very rewarding career. Um, it can be it can be morale uh, lowering whenever you see certain things on TV, but most of the time you feel like you're doing a good job and you you feel good about the job that you're doing. And and most officers have that feeling. Um, our officers enjoy being police officers. We're blessed to have a community that supports us. Ninety five percent of all races in our community support the police. We're a very diverse police department with 51% minority. We've got a command staff that reflects the makeup of our community. And for all those things, I believe, are the reasons that, that we don't have the riots in Houston, Texas, that other cities have whenever, whenever things explode. But uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great job, a rewarding job, can be a fun job, but it's also very dangerous, and we also understand that. We've had 113 Houston police officers been killed in the line of duty since the inception of the Houston Police Department, and that's 113 too many. It is. And there are, by the way, 5,300 officers in the Houston PD, and they police 2.2 million people and cover, and Houston is such a big city, but I had no idea it was this big, 600 square miles. 
And, you know, a, a part of good policing is the relationships police have with the community. Talk a bit about that, where we've come over the last 20, 30, 40 years as it relates to relationships between the people the police are patrolling and protecting and those people themselves, the relationships. Hey, if you're not if you're not a police department that's engaged with the community, you're a police department that's going to have problems. Um, our our union does everything they can. We we rent out ice cream trucks and go into low income areas and have our officers in uniform giving out those ice creams. We do teddy bears in the backs of police cars and give those out. We do the junior police stickers. We do all those things because we want those young people in our community to know, especially the young people, that when they need a police officer, they can trust that person who's walking up there who's wearing the badge. And and as I say, you have 5% of all races that don't like the police and are not going to ever like the police, but all races support the police as far as if they if they hear a shooting in the neighborhood, they're still picking up that phone and dialing 911. But you have to be engaged in the community. I meet every two weeks with a group of black ministers here at the Houston Police Officers Union. I go through each one of our deadly ca- encounters with them. I read them the synopsis that our attorney did. I pull back the curtain, basically, at the Houston Police Department and show them what's going on, and they tell me what's going on in the community. And when I need these persons to support me, I pick up the phone, and they're standing there behind me supporting me because they know that we are being transparent and we're doing the right thing at the Houston Police Department and they want to be part of that team. We work a lot with our clergy here in Houston. We have a police and clergy alliance that we call it PACA that are always there for us when they need us and we are just very blessed in Houston to have the relationship with our community that we have. Well, that's great. And you've, uh, enlist- even with the activists. I have cell phone numbers of the activists and I'll even contact them and, and say, hey, look, don't jump off on this case because let me tell you what's going on here. We we don't want fuel being added to fires in Houston, Texas. You bet. And it's important to talk to people who disagree with you. And I'm, I'm so glad that you do that. That shows strength. And again, that shows that word you repeated over and over again, which is transparency. Transparency. Houston PD Union President Ray Hunt. Thank you so much for all you do, all the men and women in your force do, all that men and women in blue do across this country. This is National Police Week, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for contacting us. We appreciate it. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We combine two segments this time, random acts of kindness and our affection for anyone who puts on a uniform and gets between us and the forces of chaos and evil and always be thinking about what their lives are like. What it's like to wake up every day, strap on a gun, kiss your husband or wife goodbye, and wonder what'll happen at the end of the day. Not like most of our jobs. More after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this day in history, Alexander Hamilton was born. And for the hour, we're going to spend some time with and talking about this remarkable historic figure. And you're going to hear from Ron Chernow, who wrote what is certainly the definitive biography of Alexander Hamilton, and the book that inspired, as you'll come to learn, the play on Broadway that is just sweeping actually the nation. You cannot get a ticket. Try as you may. I had some friends fly up around Christmas time, and I had urged them to see the play, and he ended up having to pay $400 a seat in order to see it. And he did, and he told me he was glad he did. Um, and now I'm helping him pay off the balance to a loan shark. It, it's, it's worth the price of admission, folks. Get the play. And it's not, this is the kind of play, I saw it way back when it was being workshopped at the public theater. And it's the kind of play that is not contingent on a star. In fact, it is the kind of play that will make stars. And it is an unlikely cast, it's unlikely music, and it's stunning. And it tells you that the Founding Fathers' vision is alive and well, and that it touched a young writer of the caliber of the playwright of Hamilton all those years later, and that that book did, is a remarkable story. And Hamilton's was a remarkable story indeed. He was an immigrant to the United States, one of the seven foreign-born signers of the Constitution, something we don't often hear about. He was aide to camp to then General George Washington, the nation's first Treasury Secretary, the founder of the Federalist Party, our nation's financial system, the United States Coast Guard, and the New York Post. Not bad for one life. Hamilton was a prolific author, including 51 of the 85 essays that formed the Federalist Papers. And he was one of only three non-presidents to have his face on American currency. Sacagawea on the $1 coin, Hamilton on the $10 bill, and Ben Franklin on the 100 In 2004, author Ron Chernow published the definitive biography of his life titled Alexander Hamilton. And on this day that Hamilton was born, we take you to select portions of a talk Chernow gave about his book, to the New York Historical Society. Chernow started things out, like all good stories, at the beginning of Alexander Hamilton's life. He was an illegitimate boy born on the British island of Nevis, and as Dick Gilder indicated, he had suffered through a series of childhood traumas that would have shattered a lesser figure. Again, to reiterate, his father abandons the family when Alexander is 11, mother dies of tropical fever when he's 13, he's then farmed out to a first cousin who commits suicide years later. Calamities of biblical proportion seem to find their way to this young man. I had a friend of mine once describe Alexander Hamilton's childhood. Thus, he had more sad stories than the Old Testament. And he did. And as Chernow described, my goodness. Father abandons family at 11. Mother dies of tropical fever at 13 farmed out to a first cousin who commits suicide. You can't make this stuff up. It's so bad. Despite the traumas, he's a precocious young man. In 1772, in other words, about a year before the Boston Tea Party, 
a monster hurricane lashes St. Croix, and this self-taught prodigy sits down and he pens a description of the hurricane of such precocious force and eloquence that the local merchants, recognizing this wonder in their midst, band together to finance his education in North America. The wunderkind studied at King's College in Lower Manhattan, later renamed Columbia, King's being a slightly awkward and inconvenient name after the revolution. And already as undergraduate extraordinaire, Hamilton is publishing stirring pamphlets against the British. He takes up a musket and he drills with his fellow students in nearby St. Paul's churchyard, today adjacent to Ground Zero. And he delivers spellbinding speeches to large crowds on what is today New York City Hall Park. So you're getting to know just a little bit about the nature and character of this young man and overcoming obstacles, overcoming status, overcoming regional differences. This young man thrives in what is upper Manhattan. Hamilton's Strange Studies, take a listen. Hamilton also totes along six volumes of Plutarch's Lives, and he takes the empty pages of a military paybook, and we see him recording notes on foreign exchange, population growth, geography, even European rivers that he will never set eyes on. In fact, in his notes, very interesting notes culled from Plutarch, we see a young man who seems absolutely bewitched by the bizarre sexual practices of ancient Rome. For instance, Hamilton noted that in ancient Rome, young married women seemed to enjoy being whipped by lusty young noblemen. Why? Because they thought that it aided conception. I can tell you, when you study our founding fathers, you are led down all sorts of unexpected byways. (laughs) So true. And what's so wonderful about Chernoff's storytelling is that he humanizes the human. And anyone who gets through American history courses and finds them boring, it's not the history that's boring, folks. It's your teacher. It's your teacher. And regrettably, too many history teachers kill this otherwise unbelievable material. Plutarch. I mean, he's studying Plutarch. He's studying foreign exchanges. Who studies both of those things, let alone one? A kid who finds himself at Columbia University. Pretty unbelievable. And by the way, this day in history is brought to you by our sponsors and our partners at Hillsdale College. Where, my goodness, you can actually learn stuff. Like Plutarch. Maybe not foreign currencies, but certainly Hamilton. You'll learn about the Federalist Papers. My goodness, you'll read them. You'll actually enjoy them. When we come back, more on the life of Alexander Hamilton, born on this day in history in 1755. This is Our American Stories, and we often like to tell the stories of people 
from every walk of life, including famous actors and actresses. We did an hour on Al Pacino, you must see, and also an hour on Barbara Streisand, you must see and hear as well. You can go to ouramericannetwork.org and check out all that we do. Those are on this day's in history. And here we're going to talk about, well, for the next few segments, a woman that many people recognize, but few are familiar with her life. This is the story, thanks to Faith, of Audrey Hepburn. Stunning. A beauty icon. Charming. Delightful. One could say enrapturing. Yet, her large sad brown eyes tell us another story. A story that the Hollywood glitz and glam failed to tell. Audrey Hepburn. If you don't know the name, surely you have seen the face. With her show-stopping smile, she starred in films such as Roman Holiday, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Charade, and of course, My Fair Lady, among many others. But before she was widely known for her acting, Audrey Hepburn was not born with a silver spoon in her mouth. She was a child of World War II. Born in Brussels, Belgium on May 4, 1929, Audrey did not grow up acting. In fact, she grew up dancing. Then the war began and Audrey experienced what the Dutch referred to as their hunger winter, which occurred in the winter of 1944 to 1945. A German blockade cut off food and fuel shipments from farm areas. As many as 22,000 people died. So for Audrey, adolescence had been overshadowed by the struggle for survival. And she faced severe malnutrition. Something that would affect her health for the rest of her life. However, while the war was difficult, her father abandoning her family had perhaps an even larger impact. With his leaving, she now carried a large burden of insecurities that many could see. During World War II, she delivered hidden messages for their resistance, which she would store in her ballet shoes. When the war ended, emergency food packages were brought in abundance. The packages arrived from the United Nations Relief Fund, the forerunner of UNICEF, which would play a large role in her life later on. In 1948, sadly, the war had destroyed their hometown in Holland, so Audrey and her mother moved to London. Audrey started studying on a ballet scholarship. However, at 5'7", she was too tall to achieve the status of prima ballerina. So she began pursuing a different type of performance. Here's Audrey speaking of her acting career. By chance, fall into a period in movie making when these directors were around and wanted me. And that has been a sort of miracle of my career because I haven't made that many pictures. But they were all, one after the other, four great directors with great actors. I, I was not an actress when I came to movies, I was a dancer. So I had no experience. I had experience in working, working hard, ballet is hard, discipline. Those were the things I could contribute. I wasn't a tearing beauty. I didn't have a, any way for them to know of whether I could really act. But in Willie's sensitivity, in Billy's sensitivity, they realized there was enough there for them, as a human being, to draw out. And that has been my limitations also. I've never been able to 
declaim Shakespeare or do those kind of things. What I'm really trying to say is I never really became an actress. I never did the repertoire in the theatre or the whole gamut in movies. It was a sort of miraculous period in my life when I was in the hands of these people and I was born with something that appealed to an audience at that particular time and it, that's why it, it, it never ceases to to puzzle and yet also to to dazzle me in a way that I, I mean I never really became an actress mm. in the sense that Yes, I went from one picture to the other, from one director to the other, from one actor to the other. I just walked on the set, knowing my lines, and took it from there. The famous director, William Wyler, came to England looking for just such a young actress as her. He came to England looking for an unknown to do the picture, which in fact was my only qualification for that picture. I was working in musicals, I just acquired an agent, or rather the agent acquired me, <laughs> and I was doing little bits for television and in movies to, to, to earn an extra pound or two, or a shilling in those days went a long way. And um, he really ordered a lot of tests made, and I was one of them. He did ask to see me. He met with me just a few minutes just to sort of check me out had me come to the hotel. I think he was staying at Claridge's in those days. And, uh, and then he left town. But he left me in the hands of a marvelous English director called Thorold Dickinson. When he directed this test, he was fully aware of the fact that I was petrified and didn't know how to go about the test or anything. And what he did do, which was very good and very clever and very fortunate for me, is once I'd played my scene, which I did very badly and all of that, he just had me sit talking to, he was next to the camera, and asked me questions about me or whatever I liked and disliked. And, and um, I sort of forgot about the camera and talked with Sorold. And that's the test that eventually uh, won me the part and started, you know, a lovely career for me. The part that she would play would be in the 1953 film Roman Holiday, a story of a runaway princess who falls in love with an American newsman, played by Gregory Peck. This was the role of a lifetime, one that would skyrocket her career. Audrey shares her thoughts on the filming of Roman Holiday. Well, I had no sense, period, <laughs> in those days. I, I was awfully new and awfully young and doing my very first big movie thrilled to be doing it, but I was not even aware enough yet then of the significance of doing a picture for William Wyler, who William Wyler really was. I mean, I caught on very quickly. I was very new to everything. I mean, only sort of, it was only four years before that come out of Holland and a long German occupation, all of that, where we hadn't been able to keep up at all with, with pictures, and I was way behind, and there's so much I wasn't aware of. You know, so let alone think of me or future. Or I, I didn't know it was going to lead even to another movie. Being that this was her first major film, Audrey had some things to learn. Here is the scene that she struggled with the most, as the princess is saying goodbye to the man whom she's fallen in love with. I have to leave you now. 
I'm going to that corner there and turn. You must stay in the car and drive away. Promise not to watch me go beyond the corner. Just drive away and leave me. As I leave you. she talks about how she mustered the tears to film that final scene in Roman Holiday. The last scene in the, fact, in the picture was in fact the last scene we were shooting. It was done in mm-hmm. sequence for once. And if you remember, Greg and I have to say goodbye in the car. And that's it. We have to separate. And clearly, I was supposed to cry. And it was late at night and I was tired and I played the scene very nicely and everything, but tears didn't come and I didn't know how to make them come. I hadn't ever tried or learned unless they came perfectly natural and nothing was happening. And Willie Weiler came over to our little car and gave me hell. Now he'd always been so adorable and very gentle to me and as I said, always bringing out the best in me and everything. He really let me have it and I burst into tears and he shot And when we come back, more on the life of Audrey Hepburn. And my goodness, what a crafty old cager William Wyler was to do that. And then he shot the scene, get the girl to go cry no matter what, and keep the camera rolling. That's Hollywood. When we come back, more on this amazing story, Audrey Hepburn's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to excerpts from the soundtrack of My Fair Lady. And if you have a chance, if your family hasn't seen it, if you haven't seen it in a while, if you've never seen it, it may be the greatest musical movie ever made. It was one of the greatest musicals ever written, and all based on George Bernard Shaw's classic comedy, Pygmalion. And then Trading Places, the Eddie Murphy movie, so many others followed the basic uh, plot line of My Fair Lady. Audrey Hepburn starred in it. That's why we're playing that music. And now we return to Faith and the real-life story behind the story of Audrey Hepburn's life. We left off talking about her first major film, Roman Holiday. Back to you, Faith. After this film, she was an overnight star. She had the opportunity to work with many wonderful directors and strong male leads. And in 1957, Audrey played Joe Stockton in Funny Face with co-star Fred Astaire, famous actor and dancer. Though she was beyond beautiful and charming, 
Audrey was a young woman with many insecurities. However, here she recounts the time that she first met Fred. I was never going to be a great dancer. I was too tall. I didn't have the training that I should have had when I was younger because of the war and so forth. But I might have gone on hoofing because I had to earn a living for some years more. I do remember the first time I met Fred Astaire and that was on the set. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I had a very sort of uh, slim kind of, slender kind of technique. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't a great technician at all. And uh, to be, you know, uh, cast opposite him was, was terribly exciting, but I was very apprehensive. You see, the minute I walked on the set for the rehearsal, and we just had one working light and a piano player. And he was so dear and knew full well, I imagine, being a sensitive man, how I felt. But he was fun, made me relax, and before you knew it, then, there was some music going, and he said, let's try a few steps, and, you know, off we went. I can say I think I, I became very good friends with, with, with Fred, and I adored him. And I was never, ever scared of him after that first hour. And of course, her role in Breakfast at Tiffany's as Holly Golightly showed her diversity in acting. But needless to say, there was some controversy over this role, considering that Holly Golightly is a call girl. I think for one thing, I don't think Truman Capote thought I was right for the part. And, uh, I don't know, I think sort of some people thought that, you know, it was a different era, that it was a bit daring to play a call girl. The scene with the cat, because I'm a, I'm a, I'm putty about animals. I have four dogs now, but I've had, I've had everything in my life. And it was awfully tough to throw that lovely marmalade cat into the rain. And in fact, it didn't want to get out of the cab and I had to push it out and shout at it and everything. But fortunately, I have the scene at the very end when I can go find it and hug it. And, and it was in Breakfast at Tiffany's where she sang the song Moon River. The head of the studio originally wanted to get rid of the song. But Audrey was there and told the head, Over my dead body. Lucky for them, because the song went on to win an Academy Award for Best Original Song in 1961.
Her acting career continued to diversify when she played Susie Hendricks in the film Wait Until Dark in 1967. This was a psychological horror thriller. It is in this film that she plays a blind woman. And while Audrey always claimed that she never became a true actress, she explains how she learned to play this role. That was a part that I was, you know, very happy to, 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 uh, to be given. But it did cause some anxiety for several weeks before we ever sort of started the picture. Because the studio did want me to be blind in some way and uh, or rather eager to either have me wear dark glasses or have a scar near an eye, you know, which worried me terribly. Because as I say, I'm not a sort of, I don't like for technique to show or even to be there. I also felt that this would draw attention to the fact that I'm not blind if you put makeup on somebody. So my hope was to do it from the inside out and to somehow convince the audience who knew that, thank God, Audrey Hepburn is not blind, but that I, for, some, for a fleeting moment, could create an illusion of blindness. And two marvelous things happened. One was I spent several weeks going every day to the lighthouse in New York, the institution for the blind. I was blindfolded and I learned what it meant technically to be blind. To go up and down in elevators, to find something you throw on the floor, to make a meal, to find things in a room. But then I had another extraordinary stroke of, of luck, I would say, but it was a blessing. I met a young girl who had in fact been blinded and in no time at all, I'm sorry that right this second I can't remember her name, I said, do something for me. Find your way around this room. And I sat on my chair and just watched her. She had beautiful eyes, dark, shiny eyes. There was no way of knowing that she couldn't see. And then when there were times that she didn't feel the part, she learned that she could use her appearance to look the part. Because as I didn't have this technique of being able to deal with the part in, you know, however way it was, it was often an enormous help to know that you looked the part. Then the rest wasn't so tough anymore. They say you do a period picture. Whether it was worn piece, when you wear high waists and little curls and crinolines, or the nun story, when you wear a habit. Once you're in that habit of a nun, it's not that you become a saint. You walk differently, you feel something. And it's also true if you've got rustling taffeta and, and a fan or whatever it is, you walk differently, you sit differently, you've got all the stays. The... That is an enormous help. It's so true. I remember John Travolta saying once he got the hair down, a character, everything else was done. And so often we all know this, how we dress can make us feel different. And when we come back, more of this extraordinary life, the woman who gave us such remarkable movies as Roman Holiday, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Charade, and my family favorite, my favorite musical, my little girl's favorite musical, and my bride's My Fair Lady. More on Audrey Hepburn's story 
here on Our American Stories. stories and we return to the life of Audrey Hepburn. We pick up with Audrey talking about how to look the part when you don't always feel the part. And also in, in the modern day pictures, wearing Givenchy's, you know, lovely simple clothes. If I was wearing a jazzy little red coat and, and whatever little hat was then the fashion, I felt super. And it gave me the feeling of whoever I was playing in charade, or Breakfast at Tiffany, or, or being, walking down those steps, stairs, for the first time, beautifully dressed in My Fair Lady. Now, actually, what you see is just a dress. How could you miss? The last time the audience saw you, you were grimy and couldn't speak properly in whatever it is. The scene is set up in a glory the music, the, the, the second that you don't see anybody. And around the staircase I come in this absolutely sublime white ball dress, which was a genuine one, by the way, which Cecil uh, Beaton had found. It was a, an antique. Made up, my hair dressed to kill, diamonds everywhere. All I had to do was walk down the stairs. She referenced the film My Fair Lady. Originally a stage show, My Fair Lady is the story of a young cockney flower seller named Eliza Doolittle. She overhears an arrogant phonetics professor, Henry Higgins, as he casually wagers that he could teach her how to speak proper English, thereby making her presentable in the high society of Edwardian London. Here is the scene of her first meeting with the professor. All right, Eliza, say it again. They rhyme in spine, stays mainly in the plain. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. Didn't I say that? No, Eliza, you didn't sigh that. You didn't even say that. Now, every night before you get into bed where you used to say your prayers, I want you to say the rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain 50 times. You get much further with the Lord if you learn not to offend his ears. Now for your H's. Now come here, Eliza, and watch closely. Now. You see that flame? Every time you pronounce the letter H correctly, the flame will waver, and every time you drop your H, the flame will remain stationary. That's how you'll know if you've done it correctly. In time, your ear will hear the difference. See it better in the mirror. Now, listen carefully. In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire, hurricanes hardly ever happen. Now, repeat that after me. In Hartford, Hereford and Hampshire, hurricanes hardly ever happen. In Hartford, Hereford and Hampshire, hurricanes hardly ever happen. Oh, no, 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 no. I have no ear at all. Shall I do it over? No, please. 
For this role, Audrey was chosen over Julie Andrews, who had originated the role in the stage show. However, producer Jack Warner thought Audrey Hepburn more affordable, which caused quite a bit of upset, especially when Hepburn did not end up singing in the film, something that presumably Julie Andrews would have done. This was a monster role, but Audrey was ready to take it on. However, she was devastated when they dubbed her singing in parts with the voiceover actress Marnie Dixon, and she did not receive Best Actress. Instead, Julie Andrews did, for her screen debut in Mary Poppins. While this was greatly disappointing, Audrey's career was truly a great one. But did Audrey ever consider her fame a burden? Never a burden, and there isn't really a downside. Like in everything, there's you know, you can find a, a problem. I think the only time it was a little hard for me was, I think, when my second son was born and I was at that time living in Rome and I could take him nowhere, not to a park, not down the street, not put him on a terrace without paparazzi. And that was very difficult because there again, it wasn't me bothering the child, you know, which really drove me mad. And as he began to be of an age, I could take him to the parks and everything because I lived in an apartment. To have photographers jump out from behind trees and he'd be, in, <laughs> he'd be howling from, because he was so startled and that was very difficult. But then again, a dear friend who has a beautiful garden in Rome told me, bring your child here with other children as often as you want. I'd love to have them in the garden. You'll make me happy. So again, I was very lucky. So these are the little difficult moments that I've had. I can think of no downside. Audrey Hepburn experienced a lot of sadness. An unfaithful spouse and the loss of children through miscarriages made life difficult. And for her, being a mother was all she ever wanted, even more so than her acting career. Perhaps it was because her father had deserted her family, and she desperately wanted a loving family of her own. At age 63 years old, Audrey Hepburn went to Somalia on behalf of UNICEF. She used her stardom, something that she had never done, to bring the message to the world that these children needed help. Unfortunately, her own health began to fade. She got sick in Somalia and had to come home to Switzerland. Everyone thought that she would get better. However, when she returned home in 1992, she began suffering from abdominal pain. She had cancer, and the cancer was already in its terminal state. Audrey Hepburn died on January 20th, 1993, surrounded by her partner at the time, Robert Walden, and her two sons. When she died, columnist Rex Reed said that Audrey Hepburn was proof that God could still create perfection. Her humility was one to be noted. Perhaps that is why she was so well-loved. Every moment she had in her career, she was always incredibly amazed and grateful for such an opportunity. When Audrey won the Tony Award in 1954, she wanted to thank all the people who had helped and nurtured a totally insecure, inexperienced, and skinny broad. No one saw her like that. She once said, 
How shall I sum up my life? I think I have been particularly lucky. She passed while still doing good to others. Her poised and elegant disposition has left its mark in the acting world and for those who have seen her films. Yes, she was indeed beautiful, but there was so much more to her than her charm and cool composure. She left this earth evidencing her priorities to the world. But if I'm with UNICEF, therefore, if I'm concerned about children today, it's still the same thread, if you want to call it, or reason, or quality, which I spoke about before with directors, with actors, with people, is that, yes, I went through a war. Surely that's made me a little more aware than somebody who might not have what it means to be hungry, deprivation, and so forth. Never do I think of that when I see a child in Africa who's at death's door. But what I've always had, and maybe that I was born with, was an enormous love of people, children. I loved them when I was little. I used to embarrass my mother by trying to pick babies out of prams, you know, that kind of thing. The one thing I dreamed of in my life was to have children of my own. It always boils down to the same thing of not only receiving love, but wanting desperately to give it, enormous need to give it. It is true that I had an extraordinary mother. She herself was not a very affectionate person in the sense that I today consider affection. I spent a lot of time looking for it and I found it. She was a fabulous mother, but she came from an era, she was born in 1900, Victorian influence still, of great discipline, of great ethics, lot of love within her, not always able to show it. I'm very strict. I went searching all over the place to find somebody who'd cuddle me, you know? And I found it in my aunts, in my friends. That is something that has stayed very strong. Maybe it's my nature. I don't know, maybe with a different mother, it would still be the same. And out of that comes enormous concern. And that is the reason for which I could not possibly refuse to help a child if I can. Now I've got to be careful how I sound. I have an enormous love for humanity and the human qualities in people when they come out. That is perhaps what has come through off the screen. And there you have it, the life of Audrey Hepburn. Great job on that as always, Faith. And it was a beautiful life, beautiful films, and beautiful work she did for the United Nations and UNICEF her entire adult life, always showing love for kids and kids with less than the rest of us. This is Our American Stories. Go to Our American Network to hear and see all that we do. 